Chapter Nine of the Life of Jesse Harding Pomeroy by E. Luscombe Haskell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Nine: A Glance at Pomeroy's Youth, Jesse's Unaccountable Depravity. In my search for facts concerning Pomeroy, I found in the Boston Globe an article relating incidents of his youth. I made the following quotations. As I remember Jesse, he was a couple of years older than I, and the quietest and most retiring boy I ever knew. He seldom had a word to say for himself or anybody else. He would never kick football with the other boys, but sit on a fence or stone wall and overlook the job. When it came to choosing up sides for a terrific game of baseball, Jesse would never consent to be on either side, nor would he umpire the game. If we coaxed real hard, he would keep the score, sitting on the green, with his eyes cast down, and sticking his knife into the sod absently, not at all viciously. When it came to swimming and jumping off cross-trees of schooners and coal stagings into the bay, Jesse was not in it. He would sit on the wharf or on the side of the schooner, legs dangling over, quiet and furtive. If we made a night raid on Dr. Howe's orchard, Jesse wouldn't be with us. Often on Sundays we would hire a boat at Old City Point at a quarter of a dollar an hour, and go rowing across to faraway orchards. Jesse would sit in the bow or stern and let us pull at the oars. That was remarkable, for we all wanted to row. Jesse was the only boy I ever knew who wouldn't try to pull a boat out of the water with an oar. One fine day there came into the schoolroom, in which Jesse had a seat and desk, the headmaster, a Mr. Barnes, I think, an officer and one of the unknown's victims. The little fellow had been found, I think, in Chelsea, hung up and cut up. When he recovered, he said it wasn't a man with red whiskers and hair who had treated him so, but a boy who looked to be four or five years older than himself. In fact, like a schoolboy, he said. So they took this poor little mutilated chap around to all the schools in Boston, I believe, until they came to, I think, the Bigelow School. "'Do you see him here?' said the master to the little victim. "'No,' hesitatingly replied the little fellow. Then sharply from the lady teacher, "'Pomeroy, why don't you hold up your head?' Slowly Jesse raised his head and the boy screamed, "'That's him! That's him! I'd know him by his eye!' And so Jesse was arrested, tried, found guilty, and sentenced to the Westboro Reform School. If Jesse had been ill that day, ill enough to have kept himself in the house, he might be rivaling Jack the Ripper now. Jesse had a bad eye, not in a wicked sense, but we boys used to say that Jesse had a lace curtain over his eye. It was a white eye. His other eye was a mild, I think, blue one. 
I always felt sorry for him on account of the sad, sort of appealing, dog-like look in those eyes of his. As I remember him, he had light brown hair and was always neatly dressed. Jesse never quarreled with or raised his voice to anyone. His manners were perfect. But he had a hard time of it in the Westboro Reform School. The boys there, the majority of them, were in for playing truant and being unmanageably wild. Jesse was treated as a common pickpocket would be by burglars. There are several grades, even in boys' prisons, and scavengers cannot mingle with aristocrats. So, every time a boy got a chance, Jesse was whipped. His story had got over the school. But his mother bent all her energies toward his release, with the result that Jesse was liberated to read novels behind his brother's newsstand, for he was shunned by the boys in the fields. He was out a little while when I met him one day while I was going on skates under full sail down the bay to Fort Independence. All we had to do in those days was to open our jackets, face the south, and the wind would do the rest for miles. He was coming up afoot, striking at a wooden block with a hockey. I cried out, Hello, Jesse, but he didn't take any notice of me. Sometimes we wouldn't see Jesse for days and days. Then, suddenly, he would slope onto our playground with a shoulder shrug by way of reply to our salutations, and get away by himself to resume his old occupation of sticking his knife into the green sward. The only time that Jesse would brighten up was when we played scouts and Indians. I always insisted on playing Wild Bill, because he had killed thirty-nine men, and Buffalo Bill, Dashing Charlie Emmett, Texas Jack, Wrestling Joe, and Squirrel Cap were each impersonated by a competent artist. The Indians were entrusted to boys who expected to get thrashed, and who generally deserved nothing but a thrashing. Jesse would watch us, but he thought it unfair that the Indians were always wiped out while the scouts were victorious. He seemed to think more of the Indians than he did of the scouts. I guess that was because he was such a novel reader. He always had a brick-colored beetle or a white-covered Monroe in his pocket or hand. In school, he used to keep a novel back of his history, grammar, or geography, and devour it while pretending to study his lessons. Simon Gertie, I remember, was his hero, while the rest of us swore by Kenton, Boone, and the Wetzels. Jesse used to think that it was a fine thing to be a renegade like Gertie, to be the one white man in a great Indian tribe like the Shawnees, to have lots of squaws to do all the work, while he sat around and discussed roasted venison. Then the fun with the prisoners of war, the running of the gauntlet, and the different modes of putting captives to death. It was all wildly extravagant talk, and not worth writing about, but for the fact that at the very time Boston was in a sea of excitement over the outrages perpetrated by some unknown person on little boys 
of from eight to nine years of age. One week the news would come that a little boy was found tied to a telegraph pole on the old colony, or Boston, Hartford, and Erie Road, horribly mutilated, with his back in ribbons and caked with salt. The next week, or month, another little boy, it was never a boy of Jesse's size or age, nor anywhere near it, would be found in Chelsea, or East Boston, or Jamaica Plain, or Dorchester, mutilated and cut in the same way. Sometimes a boy was found tied to a tree, sometimes in an old barn, but oftener to a telegraph pole on some railroad. Fathers began to tell their boys to be careful of a man with red hair and beard, as the goth was described by his victims, and mothers were anxious if their boys were out of their sight for half a day. We used to talk about this earlier ripper among ourselves, but Jesse never had anything to say about it, one way or the other. Then the number of boys who were chased and escaped by the enamel of their teeth at about this time was legion. In looking over the files of the Chelsea Pioneer and Telegraph back in the 70s, I found an article entitled Unaccountable Depravity. It was as follows. Some months ago a big boy decoyed a smaller one to an old house in the rear of Powderhorn Hill, where he stripped and tied him, and beat him in a most cruel manner without any provocation or apparent motive whatever. This fiendish brute has appeared again, for it can hardly be possible that the same vileness should have an imitator. On Monday last, about ten o'clock, a little boy, eight years old, named John Balch, was gazing wistfully into Polly's toy store on Park Street when he was accosted by a large boy, sixteen or seventeen years of age, who asked the little lad if he did not wish to make a quarter of a dollar. The lad replied in the affirmative. "'Then come with me,' he said. "'I will show you the man. He wants you to carry a small bundle, to do an errand.' And the two boys went off together. When about halfway, the Balch boy began to demur. His evil genius encouraged him to proceed. The distance, he said, was not much further, and the man was waiting to give him the twenty-five cents and so on, until they reached the spot back of Powder Horn, near the brick kiln. Here the villain enticed him into an old house when he threatened the boy if he made the least outcry he would kill him. He stripped off the boy's clothes, gagged him by stuffing a handkerchief in his mouth, tied him up by the wrists to a beam with cords which he had brought for the purpose, and flogged him with a rope unmercifully and fiendishly. When the boy asked why he did so, his reply was, The man told me to do it. When he had whipped the poor victim about ten minutes till he was black and blue, he added a few severe kicks, and being apparently satisfied with his exploit, he untied him and put the cords in his pocket, telling the boy that if he came out of the place he would kill him. 
the boy was afraid to go out and sat there till someone came in meantime the parents who live in the academy of music building and who are newcomers to the city missed their son and looked for him till evening fearing he might have fallen off one of the wharves they were surprised to see him returning about five o'clock he had been absent from ten to five the boy can identify the fiend when he sees him the city council has offered a reward of five hundred dollars for his conviction this brings to a close the history of massachusetts's most noted criminal there is no doubt that in the future as in the past pomeroy will be heard from and that he will add considerable many interesting facts to his history before death shall come and free him from his lonely prison cell end of chapter nine end of the life of jesse harding pomeroy by e luscombe haskell this recording has been by roger moline